main point of Jesus' teaching this morning concerns the great reversal of fortune that death brings for many people. Death will bring great reversal for many. With those introductory remarks at the forefront of your minds, I want to invite you to open your Bibles back up to Luke chapter 16 where we left off last week and begin reading with me the second half of the chapter beginning with verse 19. Jesus is speaking as Luke has recorded him and Jesus says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lift up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone just goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Church, these are the words of our Lord Jesus, and this is the word of God. Amen. As we begin to dive into our text, I want to make some opening remarks about first things, first things about Luke's gospel and first things about our Messiah Jesus. And I want to begin by noting the progression in context of our passage. You see, Jesus in this section of Luke's gospel, as Luke has recorded it, has set his face to Jerusalem. He is headed to the cross. He has fixed his attention on becoming the atoning sacrifice for sinful mankind. And as he is journeying from the north to Jerusalem in the south, as he is headed to the cross, he walks a very narrow road. And as he's on that very narrow road, he teaches us what it means to enter the kingdom of God through a very narrow door. And back in chapter 13, Jesus speaks to the people as he's passing through the sounds, passing through the cities, and I've noted the passage in your notes, but for the sake of brevity, I'm not going to to go there. But basically, Jesus speaks to the people about this theme of reversal and the reality of judgment. You see, death will bring great reversal for many. 
And so from chapter 13, we fast forward to chapter 16, the chapter that we're in right now. And chapter 16 is really Jesus' teaching about money. Jesus' teaching about wealth. But it's contextualized within his greater concerns about what it means to be his disciple. And so in chapter 16, we see Jesus teaching us how our dollars relate to our discipleship, how our savings relate to our serving, how our view of cash relates to the inbreaking kingdom of God. And last week, if you were here, you heard the first parable in chapter 16 preached, and that parable likewise began with a rich man. And that rich man had a shrewd manager, and Jesus commended the way that shrewd manager handled worldly wealth, and he, he encouraged the sons of light, the people of the kingdom, to be shrewd with the way they manage their worldly wealth in such a way as to win people into the kingdom, not just to store it up for themselves. But that parable concluded with Jesus making this climactic proclamation about wealth in the middle of the chapter. In verse 13, Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, he says, you cannot, you cannot serve God and money. He is, of course, talking to the Pharisees in this context. And Luke goes on to tell us the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and, and they ridiculed Jesus. They reviled him. His words provoked anger in their hearts towards him. Their disposition towards him was hostile. And so Jesus, in response to their ridicule, said to them, you all are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. And these words are dripping with irony because, of course, Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the God-man, and Jesus knows their hearts. You see, in that time, the Pharisees were viewed as the good guys. It's very easy for us to look back on them condescendingly with, you know, the testimony of Scripture because we see them in an antagonistic light. But they were the pastors of Palestine. They were the guys that stood up in the synagogue on Saturday and taught the Bible. They knew the Bible better than anybody else. They were the spiritual leaders of the people of God. They were the ones that everybody looked to to find the way to God. And Jesus is cutting through the veneer of spirituality and turning the religious establishment on its head and exposing them as hypocrites, as those who have depraved hearts, and who are, despite all outward appearance and religious practice, in actuality, quite far from God. In order to fully appreciate what's going on here, in order for us to kind of put one foot in the first century when these events occurred, we need to understand kind of Jewish perspectives on cash. Jewish perspectives on currency. You see, it was very common in that day for, for the Jewish people to look to... Uh, other Jewish people who had money and were believing, and to see that money or that wealth as an indicator of God's favor. You see, oh, that, that, that Jewish brother of mine, look how blessed he is. God has had favor on him. God's approval is expressed in his life through his material abundance. The same could be said for health. If you had health and you had wealth and you were a Jewish person, it was supposed that those were indicators of God's favor. We see that the Pharisees were lover of money. With that background in mind, I want to call your attention 
to the fact that Jesus opens our passage, our parable this morning, with a picture of privilege, with a picture of prosperity. And he juxtaposes that picture of prosperity with a picture of disparity. So look with me at verse 19. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. The parable begins the same way as verse 1, the first parable in this chapter. There was a rich man who, and what does Jesus say about this rich man? How does he describe him? What was he wearing? Jesus says that he was clothed in purple and in fine linen. Purple represented the most luxurious color. It was the color of royalty. It was the color of kings. Purple dye was the most expensive dye to acquire. It was the most rare dye to produce. So this man was adorned in purple. And not only was he adorned in the most lavish color of the day, he was also adorned in garments of linen, but not just linen. What kind of linen? Fine linen, fine linen representing the most expensive fabric. This man was wearing the most expensive clothes of the day. Jesus is picturing for us extravagance, luxury, and vanity. But he doesn't stop there. He continues. He said that this is a man who feasted sumptuously every day. And the word that's translated simply feasted here carries a deeper, more rich sense of enjoying oneself, of rejoicing in life, of celebrating. This was a man who was well adorned and who was celebrating, who was rejoicing, but not just ordinarily celebrating. He was celebrating sumptuously. That word denotes certain lavish lifestyle. It, it, it connotes a certain extravagance. It, it communicates opulence. And he didn't just do this on payday. He did this every day. So look at the picture that Jesus is painting. This man was living the dream. This man is living the life. This man was living it up. This man surely appeared to be one who was blessed by God. He had health and he had wealth. He represents today Rodeo Drive. If he were alive today, he would be wearing Versace and Prada and Hugo Boss. He'd be rocking a Rolex and he'd be rolling up to synagogue in a Mercedes Benz. To kind of use some contemporary vernacular, dude had some swagger. And he did not mind showing it off. He was proud of it. This is a man who was all wrapped up in mammon. Mammon is the Greek term that is translated money in chapter 16. When Jesus says money, he really is saying mammon. And mammon refers to money and property and all the material wealth one can, communi- can, can accumulate in this life. He's a man all wrapped up in his mammon. He loved to flaunt it. He loved to revel in it. He enjoyed it. It was his way of life. You dig? This kind of extravagant, opulent picture should lead us to say, oh man, oh man, what privilege this man enjoyed. As if the picture is not ultra high definition enough, Jesus continues. His wealth doesn't stop with his wardrobe or with his lavish living. Verse 20, Jesus says four significant words, and at his what? At his gate. We think, oh, that's cute. He had a gate. That term, you know, evokes an image in our minds of kind of, you know, a modest, you know, suburban white picket fence gate. But the real term here that's used in the Greek is pylon. And this is the kind of gate that would have been 
built into a great temple or in a large palace. And so it's not just the case that this guy was a baller in terms of the swag that he rocked day to day, but it's also the case that this guy lived in a double wide lot on the Strand with a grand two-story entrance, custom fabricated, unlike anybody else in the neighborhood. So Jesus says, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was laid a poor man. The verb is passive. It's not that Lazarus walked over to this man's grand entrance to his gate, to his great pylon, to his palatial palatial domicile and sat himself down. No, no, no. The picture Jesus is giving us is a picture of a man who is an invalid, incapacitated, unable to care for himself. And so he was quite literally cast down at the curbside, cast down at the gate of this rich man. It was not something he did, it was something that happened to him. Somebody laid him there because he was not capable of laying there himself. It's It's very instructive that we see he has a name. What is his name? Lazarus. This isn't the same Lazarus that appears elsewhere in the New Testament. Lazarus was a very common Hebrew name, and it is actually a derivative of the Hebrew saying, God saves, or God has helped. And his name is an indicator to us that this man is poor with respect to the riches of this world, but rich in faith towards God. That somehow there is a connection of faith between Lazarus and the Lord. And incidentally, in all of Jesus' parables, This man, Lazarus, is the only one given a name. No other character in any of Jesus' parables is given a personal name. As a matter of fact, that detail is so significant that it has provoked some debate amongst interpreters and scholars. Some actually believe that Lazarus was a real person, not just the fictitious character of a parable of an illustration. And that there actually was a rich man, but Jesus would not refer refer to him by name as a means of kind of shaming him and demonstrating distance from him. Regardless, we see that this man, Lazarus, has a name and he has a connection with God. But he's been cast to the curb. And the Bible says, Jesus says that he is covered with sores. And he's laying there at the gate, covered with sores. Verse 21, And he was one who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. This man is laying there. Poor Lazarus is languishing and his principal driving desire is hunger. He just wants to be fed. He ju- he, he's, he's outside this palatial place and he, ju- he just wants some leftovers. As if that was not bad enough. Moreover, Jesus says... Even the dogs came and licked his sores. You see, he was covered with sores. It's likely the case that his skin had open wounds, that he was afflicted by abscesses and infection. He didn't have leprosy. He wouldn't have been allowed in the city, but he was infected. He was, he was, he was, he was sick, and he was just there on the street, and the dogs would come, and they would lick his open wounds. And we think dogs, you know, we think about our nice, well-manicured, domesticated pet canines today. But these are not the kind of dogs that Jesus is describing. You see, the dogs that Jesus is describing are more like the wild dogs that run around TJ. 
It was not uncommon for villages in that time to be populated by wild dogs who were sick and who were dirty and who were diseased and who were infested with ticks and with fleas. And they were considered unclean. If you touched that kind of a dog, you were considered unclean. And these were the kinds of dogs that were coming and licking this man Lazarus's sores as he languished on the street just outside this rich man's house. And so we see, we see two pictures. We see the rich man and we say, oh man, oh man. Then we see the poor man and we say, oh my. Oh man, what privilege becomes, oh my, what disparity One man living lavishly in his palace, the other man just outside, starving, impoverished, ailing, quite literally thrown to the curb, quite literally thrown to the dogs. We have a picture of two men, one man healthy and wealthy, but impoverished towards God, the other man languishing and lowly, but rich towards God. And so we have seen in our account so far two men before death. We see privilege and disparity, but Jesus is going to move, and now he's going to talk to us about passing and despair. I think we would all agree that death is the great equalizer, is it not? According to a recent survey, 10 out of 10 people die. And we laugh. But according to Hebrews chapter 9, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Look with me at verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. So we've seen two men before death. Now we see two men at death. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. He died. He didn't have a funeral, but we see that the Lord sent his messengers, sent his angels to receive his spirit and take him in to heaven. The, 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 the words Abraham's side are an ancient figure of speech that depict heaven, that depict close proximity with God. If you read the first chapter of John's gospel, we see that Jesus, the eternal son, was at the father's side. So there is a great reversal as Lazarus dies, but is, is swept up by God's angels and taken to Abraham's side. Abraham, the great patriarch of the Jewish faith. And so this is a picture of redemption. It is a picture of comfort. But the verse doesn't end there. We see in contrast, the rich man also died and was buried. He was buried. That's significant. That implies that he had a funeral. You see, health and wealth were thought to be indicators of God's blessing. Likewise, a proper ceremonial burial was also thought to be an indicator of God's blessing. If you were buried properly ceremonially, that, yes, yeah, he finished well. God has blessed that man. If you did not receive a burial, it was thought of that you were cursed by God. But the flip, the, the, the script has flipped in this instance. I just kind of like to think about this guy's funeral. <clears throat> think about the eulogy. I mean, he, for all practical purposes, to everyone in his community, he appeared to be a good, God-fearing Jewish man. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. The rich man is a picture of the Pharisees. According to all outward appearances, this guy's in. 
So I think about his eulogy, and I'm sure that people would say things like, what, you know, what a sophisticated man he was. What an educated man. You know, he exhibited such impeccable taste. What a skilled businessman. What an accomplished investor. What a, what a gifted community leader. What a generous philanthropist. Oh, what a remarkable man. Surely he was blessed. You see, by all earthly evaluation and estimation, this is a man who enjoyed God's favor, right? Wrong. Look again at Jesus' description of his passing. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. Look at the proximity of the three verbs there. He died, he was buried, and he was in hell. Boom, boom, boom. Died, buried, in Hades. You see, hell is an immediate place. Jesus continues, the rich man died, was buried in Hades, being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Immediately in hell, the rich man is aware. He's conscious of where he is. He is conscious of the fact that he is in torment and that Abraham and Lazarus are also alive, but that he is yet separated from them by a great distance. Hell is an immediate place. Hell is also a conscious place. This doctrine is so terrifying, some, some suggest that when we die, we're, we're, we're annihilated, that we, we cease to have any consciousness, we just cease to exist. But Jesus' words here, his teaching, speak to the contrary. Certainly when we die, we experience cessation of biological function, but our soul, our spirit, our consciousness is alive and ends up in one of two places. Verse 24, the passage continues. And the rich man called out, Father Abraham. Notice he says, Father Abraham. This man knew the Bible. This man thought that Abraham was his father. This man knew the Bible. He quoted the Bible. He thought he believed the Bible. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to tip to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. This man thought he knew God, but he ended up in the place of torment. Death will bring great reversal for many. He says, have mercy on me. The tragedy is that for people like that, there is no mercy on the other side of this life. Death ushers in either ultimate mercy by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ or ultimate punishment for those who refuse him. Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. There is irony in this moment because the rich man never acknowledged Lazarus, let alone by name in the previous life, while Lazarus lie languishing outside on the curb of his palace while he was feasting sumptuously and adorned in his purple and fine linen. But now there has been a great reversal, and now he acknowledges Lazarus. Indeed, he recognizes Lazarus. But even in the throes of hell, this rich man thinks that Lazarus yet exists to run his errands. He has not changed, this man. He's still wrapped up in himself. He is still full of pride and self-centeredness, and he's not even 
aware of it. And he will remain this way. He will remain in this condition. He will remain dominated by his sin forever. He says, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Lazarus waited and waited and waited in the previous life for just a scrap of bread from that rich man's table. But he was dumped at the foot of the rich man's gate only to wait in anguish as those wild, filthy, and diseased street dogs licked his sores. His hunger was never satisfied, but only amplified more and more with the passing of time. Death brings great reversal for many, as now we see that the rich man finds himself in a state of utter anguish as he waits for a single meager, modest drop of water to cool his burning tongue, just some small modicum of relief, but he will find no such relief. And he says, in desperation, for I am in anguish in this flame. I am in anguish in this flame. These are sobering words that this man is speaking. We wrestle with these words. They confront us. We don't like them. But these words come from Jesus. Jesus is speaking. And Jesus describes hell in many terrifying terms elsewhere in the Gospels. He calls hell the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He calls it the place of outer darkness. He calls it the abyss. He calls it the unquenchable fire, the hell of fire, the place of destruction. It is the place where the worm does not die. It is the place where one is always burning but never consumed. Most frighteningly, he says, hell is a place of eternal punishment. These are the descriptions of hell that Jesus holds up. These are the things that he said. This is not made up folklore. This is not evolved legend that kind of, that kind of manifested over 2,000 years of unfolding tradition. You know, we have the historical and the manuscript evidence to support the claim that 2,000 years ago, Jesus lived and he walked and he taught and he said these things. Amen. <clears throat> and on the basis of what he has said, he is either who he said he is, or he is the most perverse kind of liar or most deranged lunatic. So who, church, do you say that he is? Is he the Lord? Is he the coming king? Is he the one who will judge? Or is he a lunatic and a liar? Regardless of what you think about Jesus, what Jesus says about hell is abundantly clear. Hell is a real place and hell is an excruciating place. It is a place you do not want to be. Well, you need to understand, Mike, that, you know, Jesus is, is speaking with ancient Jewish metaphor and he's using symbolic imagery, and, and we can't take what he says in these passages literally. Okay, I'll grant you that Jesus is invoking first century Jewish imagery. I'll grant you that he is using language that is in some respect symbolic, but let me tell you something about the nature of a sign or a symbol. A sign or a symbol only points to a greater reality or idea. You see, a sign is never greater in magnitude than the referent to which it points. The point is, is that hell is only approximated 
by what Jesus describes. In reality, it will likely be a more fearsome and horrendous experience that we can express with our own limited human language and categories. You're like, Mike, it's Christmas. Like, I understand. I, I didn't, it wasn't, I just was assigned this passage. <laughs> The converse is true when we think about symbolic imagery, okay? It's a two-sided coin. The flip side of this coin is that we also have symbolic imagery of heaven. We see the thief on the cross profess faith in Christ, and Christ says, today, surely you will be with me in paradise. Well, the word paradise in our conception of paradise cannot even begin to approximate the glory which awaits those who are found in Christ those who will be received by him, what we will experience when he comes back and ushers in his kingdom. The Bible is God's story from creation to new creation. Jesus stands and says, behold, I am making all things new. There will be no more pain. There will be no more crying. There will be no more suffering for the former things are gone. And when we experience that reality... When we experience Jesus and his coming, we will know that the word paradise was just a cheap and unworthy substitute for the reality that God has planned for his people. Nevertheless, this is not a passage about heaven. It is a warning about hell. It is a warning about the heart's affection for mammon, for money, and for property Verse 25, but Abraham said, child. Think of that word, child. Abraham addresses him soberly, gently, child. This is a man who was distinguished in his life. He was probably the most distinguished man in his town. He was respected. He was revered. He wore purple and fine linen. He rolled in a Rolls Royce. He rolled into synagogue every weekend, every Saturday, and the people said, that man is blessed. Look at that man. But Abraham says, child. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Child, remember. Child, remember. You see, there will be full clarity in hell. We will experience full regret in hell. There will be recollection in hell of every moment that we refused God's initiative. Every time we rebuffed a gospel witness opportunity. Men, if you end up in hell, you will remember every time you objectified a naked woman on your computer screen. We will remember and regret every time we cheated God financially. We will remember every single time we cheated our neighbor financially. We will experience total and utter regret. Child, remember that in your life you had X, Y, and Z and did A, B, and C. That is a terrifying thought. You see, hell is a haunting place. It's haunting. We look at this passage 
And we tell ourselves that we're safe because we're not rich. We're just ordinary middle-class Americans. But you see, Jesus was speaking to a culture where there was no such thing as a middle class. If you said the word middle class, they'd be like, what's that? Because the only two classes that existed were the elite rich and the, the poor and impoverished. Those who feasted sumptuously and those who farmed for subsistence living to put food on their table that very night. There was no middle class. Think about our existence. Think about our privilege. We live in the most affluent country, the most affluent co community in our country. We live in Los Angeles. We live in the United States of America. We have more affluence. We have more opportunity. We have more technological progress. We have more medical care available. We have more opportunity. We've accumulated more wealth than anybody else in the world. And we live in LA. We're a capital of everything that the American dream and prosperity and advancement represents. LA, New York. We, we, we represent the top 1% of affluence relative to everybody else around the world. Think of the people starving in South America. Think of the people who are suffering the humanitarian crisis presently in Aleppo. Think of all the people in the Middle East who have nothing. Think of all the people who are ruled by brutal dictators. Think of all the people who just struggle to just live. Think of the people in Africa. Think of the people in South America. Think of all the people. We represent the apex of human existence right now. But not only do we represent the apex, the pinnacle, the zenith, of human existence right now, we represent the apex of human existence in all of human history. No one in all of human history anywhere in the world has enjoyed the privilege that we presently enjoy. Jesus is speaking to Pharisees. He's speaking to deeply religious people. He's speaking to people that know their Bibles better than the common people. He's speaking to the group that most represents or approximates what could even be conceived of as a middle class in the first century. We are the rich man. We are the rich man. The Bible says to check yourself, to examine yourself, to see if you are of the faith. This is a sobering warning not just for rich men. This is not a sobering warning just for those Pharisees 2,000 years ago. This is a sobering warning for us, church. Death will bring great reversal for many. And for those who experience that great reversal, that great reversal will be unexpected. Verse 26, and besides all this, oh my gosh, as if it isn't bad enough already, right? Like, I just feel like I've been beaten up by a professional boxer. Like, I just stepped out of an MMA ring. But Jesus says, and besides all this, it gets worse. Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. You see, there's no leaving hell. Hell is not like prison. There's no visitation in hell. There is only isolation in hell. And Jesus is saying, once your fate is sealed, your fate is sealed. 
Once your fate is sealed, your fate is sealed. Hell is an inescapable place. Verse 27, and the rich man said, then I beg you. You know things are desperate when a man of such stature is on his knees begging. Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He still thinks Lazarus is his errand boy. If only he can get a message to his family, if only he can get word to his loved ones, surely he can warn them so that they do not share in his fate. And now, the parable turns. It shifts from hell and suffering to profits and depravity. And now Jesus is going to address the default proclivity, the default condition of the human heart. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. You guys have the Bible. Just read the Bible. They have the Bible. The Bible is sufficient. Moses, the Old Testament law, the prophets, the prophets, they have the Bible. Let them read the Bible. The testimony of the Bible is sufficient. You see, we are accountable for what God has revealed. Whether we want it or not, we are accountable for what God has made freely available, for what he has revealed. This is a statement about the sufficiency of the testimony of Scripture. So Abraham says, No, let them listen to the Bible. The Bible's enough. Scripture's sufficient. And what does he say? No! Man, that's like the anthem of our culture, which is decidedly post-Christian. No, don't thump us with your Bibles. Don't talk to me about your Scriptures. No, no. If your God is real, then why doesn't he just manifest himself? Well, he did 2,000 years ago. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Notice he invokes the term repent. Now in hell, in torment, in agony, in anguish, he recognizes the need for repentance. He recognizes the need for his family to turn. Send them somebody. If they see somebody raised, surely they'll believe. And Jesus concludes this passage with Abraham responding to the rich man and saying these words. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If they do not hear, perceive, see, listen to the Bible, then they will not be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. They know the Bible. And he says, you don't have eyes to see. You don't have ears to hear. I have exposed you. You are derelict. Your hearts are dark. They are depraved. They are fallen. You think you're close to God. You're far from God. You don't really know the scriptures. And just as you will not hear the testimony of scripture and how it is fulfilled in me, he is saying to them, you will not hear the testimony of an empty tomb. You see, miracles don't matter to those who have their hearts set on money. Those who have their hearts set on money don't want God. They want the world. They want their best life now. But Jesus says that a servant cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. The heart that is set on wealth, the heart that is set on this world is opposed to the things of God. That is from the words of Jesus. 
And so the very conclusion of this passage is really a concluding judgment on those very religious people. Very religious people, but very far from God. Despite all their outward appearance and good behavior, they were lovers of money and they were hypocrites. Death will bring great reversal for many. We've concluded our passage, but I want to apply it. I want to consider for just a few brief moments some final things, final things concerning life and meaning. And I want to begin with pain and joy, pain and jubilee. I know, because I know many of you, that there are some of you here, perhaps many of you here, who are hurting. I know that there are some of you here who are in pain, some of you who are suffering, My mom is suffering from stage four metastatic breast cancer. They can't cure it. All they can try to do is contain it. I don't believe they have contained it. I believe the prayers of the saints have sustained her. Perhaps you sympathize with Lazarus and perhaps you know what it is to despair. If that is you, then I want to encourage you to reflect on this parable to reflect on Jesus' words, to think of that poor man, Lazarus, and to have hope. To have hope that this life is not all that there is. To have hope in a better place, in a better life, in a better existence that is to come. To find hope in the one true God who does not want any to perish. And he is unequivocally clear on that matter. Think about that word for just a moment, the, the word perish. Jesus has warned us in this passage what perishing really looks like. He's given us a vivid depiction of what it means to perish. But before you can appreciate good news, you have to be sobered by bad news. So behold the good news. Scripture tells us that God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It is a divine rescue operation. It is not God's principal desire that we go to this horrible place. It is God's principal desire that we be saved from it. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live so that we might have life through him. I want to talk to you about people and justice. At all four services, I've seen people walk out during this message. I know that it's a difficult message to hear. I know that internally some of you are wrestling with it right now. Jesus' words are confronting the very center of your hearts. You're saying, I don't believe in hell. Don't you? Maybe in this moment you don't want to believe in hell. But I submit to you that every single one of us are people created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. We we are his image bearers. We are created in his likeness. And as his image bearers, we have an innate human craving for justice. At the end of the day, we all want to see Batman vanquish the Joker, right? Right? Like, At the end of the movie, we want to see the bad guy get what he deserves, don't we? 
And with respect to hell, I don't think that we have a hard time believing that men like Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin, Osama bin Laden, or Adolf Hitler, or any of the tyrannical dictators who led murderous, genocidal regimes deserve to suffer in hell. We only have a problem when the concept of hell is applied to our life. We have a problem believing that we are so deserving because we have this ingrained and viewed sense that the punishment must fit the crime. It's complementary to our ingrained sense of justice. How could God send someone to hell? How could God send me to hell? How could God send my neighbor to hell? First of all, God doesn't send them there. People choose. But I would submit to you that when we think about sin, you know, how could God send me to hell for telling one white lie? Like one white lie and that's it? For eternity, that doesn't seem to compute. The punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. But you see, our hearts are deceptive. Our minds are fallen. We have to be very careful in how we think about God and his dealings. You see, a white lie is merely a very nefarious and subtle surfacing of a much deeper problem. The Bible is clear that our hearts are fallen, that we are depraved, totally and thoroughly depraved that our hearts are corrupt and fallen. You see, that's why those Pharisees couldn't work their way into God's favor. Jesus encountered the Pharisee of Pharisees in John chapter 3, Nicodemus in Jerusalem, the epicenter of Judaism, the epicenter of all the religious activity in Israel. And he said to that supreme religious leader, you have to be born again. You have to be made new. You have to be given a new heart. God has to save you. Something has to happen to you. You need to be changed because in and of yourself, your heart is fallen. It is depraved. And it is closed off to the things of God. So it's not that we go to hell for a white lie. We go to hell because in our rebellious, fallen, depraved, sinful human nature, we have rebelled against God and we have declared our independence from him. God has created us to be his vice regents, to, be, to exercise dominion, to care for and to cultivate his good creation. But we rejected that calling. We rejected that commission. It wasn't good enough because for us, starting with our father Adam, we demanded our independence and we tried to usurp his crown and his authority. And that usurpation in the heart of man has been passed down generation after generation after generation. And it gives, the sinfulness gives rise to the sin. And it is the sinfulness, the rebellion against God that warrants the punishment. But I want you to think about sin for just a moment. I want you to think about crime for just a moment. You see, it's not that we look at a white lie and say that in and of itself, in its very nature, that it is deserving of eternal judgment. You see, because there's always a, an object of a crime. There's always a recipient or an object of sin. And I would submit to you that the magnitude of a crime is determined by the object against whom the crime is committed. The severity of a sin lies not solely in the sin itself, but in whom the sin is committed against. Oh man, I don't want to admit this, but I have to, because I can't lie to you right now. I'm afraid of spiders. And so when I see a house spider, I shriek and my wife comes running. It's not very masculine, I know. <clears throat> and she kills the spider. But let's just say for the sake of argument that I killed the spider, okay? If I came and told you that I killed the spider, you'd think, good for you, no big deal. Like, I did the same thing last week. But if I told you that I went into my backyard and crushed the head of my pet dog and killed it, yeah, yeah, right? You would think, 
you're disturbed. So you, you would think something's wrong with you, Pastor Mike. I'm not coming to hear you speak anymore. <clears throat> if I told you that I took my one-year-old son out in the backyard, put a revolver to his head, and shot him, you, your hearts would react viscerally, and you would cry out for commensurate justice. You see, in all three instances, life was taken. In all three instances, a killing was committed. But the degree or the severity of that killing depended on what or who was being killed. If justice demands that the punishment fit the crime, then eternal punishment is warranted because we have sinned and rebelled against an eternal being. Rebellion against God is a sin of infinite magnitude because God is an infinite being. Rebellion against God is, is God is eternal. He's perfect. He's, he's infinite. He's holy. He gave us life. I don't think that the real scandal is the notion that people could go to hell. If we could see with full clarity, if we could see, you know, through, through God's perfect perspective, the real state of things, the scandal is not that we would go to hell. The scandal is that there would be a way for us not to. The scandal would be the gospel. The scandal would be that God himself took on the punishment for sin. The scandal would be that Jesus, whose birth we're about to celebrate, took on human form, lived a perfect life, and 33 years deep into that life, having lived it perfectly, hung on a cross, and paid the full pen penalty for sin. That is scandalous. What is scandalous is the very idea that fallen sinful people who have rebelled against their holy and good, gracious, loving God who gave them life could ever get into heaven to begin with. That is the true scandal. And finally, in closing, you've been very patient. I appreciate your endurance. I want to talk to you about prosperity in Jesus. And we could bring the lights down. Worship team could come up. It's Christmas. It may not feel like it right now, but it is. Okay? It's Christmas. And we're buying things and we're thinking about stuff and we're tempted to find happiness in material things. The rich man had everything. He had it all. But as we see in Jesus' teaching, he really had nothing at all. He experienced great reversal and we see in scripture that true prosperity is found in Christ alone. In this parable, Jesus has warned us of the peril of loving money, of loving mammon. In this parable, Jesus has warned us that death will bring great reversal for many. But in the gospel, church, in the gospel, we find an equal but opposite reversal. In the gospel, we discover that the death of Jesus brings great reversal for us. True prosperity is to be had in discovering the riches of Christ and the treasure of the gospel. And the man that finds that treasure goes and sells all that he has to obtain it. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads with me. I want to take a moment and pray. Spurgeon, a great preacher, once said that he preached with eternity on his mind, that he was not ashamed to beg and plead with sinners to come to repentance. And so I want to take a moment and I want to not be ashamed, and I want to beg and plead with some of you. He said, if anybody were to go to hell that he was aware of, let them go to hell climbing over his body as he, as he holds on to their arms and legs, attempting to communicate to them the hope 
and the deliverance and the freedom and the forgiveness that's only found in Jesus. And so while everybody's heads are bowed for just one moment, just one moment, I want to ask if there's anybody here this morning who God has convicted your heart and you recognize that you are more like the rich man than Lazarus, you recognize that you will experience a great reversal at death, you are concerned the Spirit, Holy Spirit is prompting your heart, then while nobody is looking and it's just a moment between you and I, I want to just ask you to raise your hand. To 